by Program to Chill t-shirts. My dear listeners, have you ever heard of the term enclothed cognition? The idea is that the clothes one wears has a symbolic and systemic effect on the wearer's psychological processes. Supposedly, there are at least two variables, the physical act of wearing the clothes and the symbolic meaning of said clothes. In a particular experiment from 2012, researchers found that the act of wearing lab coats significantly increased attention spans and performance over wearing other types of coats and performing these same tasks. A number of experiments have seemingly confirmed the power of these effects in controlled settings, and of course, missionaries, priests, conmen, cops, soldiers, and Discordian warlocks have been exploiting these effects for thousands of years. By Program to Chill t-shirts. If you want to harness the symbolic power of clothing to affect your own psyche, to enter the mindset of a serious researcher of the parapolitical, then I encourage you to look in the show notes of this episode to find a variety of t-shirts with excellent designs. There are the classics, such as the Angleton Mindset t-shirt, the Anti-Gnostic Action t-shirt, the Bader meinhof Gang Program to Chill t-shirt, and three new designs, including the classic show logo, a show logo inspired by vintage 1970s book covers, and my new favorite, a shirt which invites bystanders to ask you about your extremely normal interests. As the Nazi collaborator Coco Chanel once said, in order to be irreplaceable, one must always be different. These shirts will help you be the weird friend in your friend group. And who doesn't want that? Buy some shirts to help me continue doing Primo research. Buy Program to Chill t-shirts, please. Thank you, God bless, and on with the show. show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. All right. Now, we are joined today by Monty yet again. How are you doing today, Monty? I am doing well. I have my uh, various liquids in front of me once again. Um, I have uh, I have a cherry-flavored uh, sparkling water. I have a, a bottle of... Um, a bottle of spring water, and mm-hmm. I also have a uh, a can of uh, Coke Zero. I'm back on the Coke Zero, folks. I <laughs> thought I was done, but they pulled me back in. Still so, keep drinking that garbage? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I'm drinking a Baja Blast. Oh, yeah, man. That's the way to do it. <laughs> what did you get for food, by the way? Oh, for food, I, I made myself some pasta. I uh, made... Uh, 
a bolognese sauce the other day. So I reheated mm. some bolognese and then I had some uh, papadelle, you know, and a little bit of uh, a little bit of a pecorino on top of that. So I'm really carved up and ready to go. <laughs> I got a uh, chicken parm sandwich, but nothing oh, yeah. fancy, just from like a wings type of restaurant. Man, sometimes like like the little like wings places or like pizza places, like the little like mom and pop shops got some decent sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I wanted Mexican, but that was like my backup because the Mexican place was closed. So Yeah, I hear you. I almost got Mexican today, but I decided against it. Just like, yeah. like I have I have leftovers. Make those, <laughs> save some money. Now I wanted to ask you before we get into the darkest shit in the world. Yeah, no kidding. So, I know that the Portuguese are not Latino or Hispanic, like <laughs> the U.S. government has stated. <laughs> yes, we are the we are from Iberia uh, as Spaniards, but we are not Latino or Hispanic. No, mm-hmm. we're Lusophone, so it's completely different. <laughs> Lusophone, that's right. Yeah. But I did want to ask you: Do you consider it to be spiritually related? Yes, yeah, a little. I, I think we're cousins or bro, or like step, like not step brothers, like half brothers. We're very we're related, but we're more moody than they are. Like mm-hmm. they're they they're more you know showy and more um. Like our their their music's like flamenco, right? Our music is fado, which is sad and depressing and about dying in the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the dif- differences between our cultures, and it's funny how like the Brazilians are so fun, where we're kind of miserable, but. <laughs> Um. Yeah, we're kind of like the manic depressives, depressives of like the the Latin world or Southern European world. We're a little bit more moody, a little bit more melancholy. Uh, you know, we're <laughs> we're a we're a, uh, a cup half uh, half empty kind of folk. And uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to listen to that because like sad flamenco sounds great. It's it's not like flamenco at all. It's it's oh, okay. like it's it's Portuguese blues. It it can be very Ooh. beautiful. Yeah. Can be very beautiful. That sounds good. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> Every song is about someone dying at sea. Every <laughs> single song is someone like her husband went out to sea and he's not coming home and she's really sad about it. And the whole village is sad and everyone's crying. <laughs> and that is that is my culture. Just like the blues, but <laughs> sea oriented. <laughs> sea oriented murder blues. Yeah. <laughs> the sea just killing everyone. It's like a miracle that I'm here. It giveth and it taketh away. Absolutely. <laughs> no, Monte, we are here today. We were not planning on doing this episode. No, we were not planning on doing this. And then uh, just when we thought we were out, they pulled us back in. <laughs> you got to call them the bat phone or the cav dev phone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So here's what happened. Monte and I, we recorded what came out to be what was it well they're not even out yet but i think like four episodes on yeah. the freemasons and the gestures collectively yeah yeah like the whole masonic world like from like beginning to the end which was sort of the gestures mm-hmm. as or we thought at least uh yeah and then i was talking to one of my buddies george from kevdev people may or may not know george from twitter or his appearances on the farm Mm-hmm. Uh, certain people also may have wandered onto his website, which is a great, great resource. It's incredible. But so I was talking with George for a couple things, and 
I mentioned the jester thing that we were working on. And he was like, oh, there's a jester connection to a couple interesting cases. And I was like, wait, oh, really? (laughs) And so I told Monty and Monty and I (laughs) started looking frantically and oh, to our dismay, we found Chester connections to some very interesting cases. Yeah, to say the least. Um, we kind of left you with the Jesters being horrible, um, like like involved in some of the most deprived, like sexual escapades imaginable. Um, well, it seems like the gentlemen that we described in the previous episode were not alone. Um, the first name that you sent me from George was Doctor Christian Richter. So. Mm-hmm. We looked up Dr. Christian Richter and we found was he was the gynecologist involved in the Keepers scandal. So I know many of you have probably watched the, the Netflix documentary, The Keepers. Um, well, he was involved in that scandal. He was one of the, the men who was um, accused of um, of sexual assault against a number of young girls uh, during that period. And um he there was actually a lawsuit against him and uh it, it, yeah he was he was sued in 1994 there was a lawsuit against him by a, a woman who called herself Jane Rowe now we have confirmation that Dr. Richter was a jester it says so in his obituary you can see that online mm-hmm. and so okay that's another you know jester involved in some very very horrible um activity and of course like a really big like child like you know a, a really large scandal involving children so the next name that came up that was a jester was like kind of shocking to me and you i think yeah. because it opened up like the gates to hell basically um so the other like big name jester that uh george pointed pointed to us uh was uh george mills who was the mayor of west des moines during the abduction of johnny gosh yeah So in 1982, George Mills, who was a jester, was the mayor of West Des Moines, Iowa, when Johnny Gosh was abducted. And of course, um, you know, that that doesn't mean anything in itself. But when you look at the case and how the local authorities botched the Johnny Gosh case so terribly, I think it opens the door up to maybe some more speculation. Yes, I like what George from CavDev said to me. Uh, he used the term informed speculation. Yeah. Which I think that's what we're going to be doing a lot of today. Yeah, there, there's what we know and what like, so we're going to walk through some of the stuff that happened in around the Johnny Gosh case. And it it keep in mind that, you know, there's what we could prove what we know and what we could prove. And there's also what we could speculate on, but with information gained from many sources. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's going to be a lot of, uh, according to per- this person, you know, according to X allegedly, because I can't prove this stuff. And, um, but a lot of, if people are saying it, I think people should know what's being said. Right. Yeah. And that is the defense against libel, right? Is Right. <laughs> I'm not saying this, this is what, this person said and yes george mills was a jester again uh in his obituary uh it says quite plainly that he was a he was active in the shrine serving as potentate 
1968, he was past president of the Central State Shrine Association and a member of the Royal Order of Jesters. So that just sort of tells, you know, he is a jester. So um, now the Johnny Cash case is infamous and we don't have time to go through every single like excruciating detail about the case. But a general overview is on the morning of September 5th, 1982, uh, West Des Moines paper boy Johnny Gosh was abducted while on his paper route. The police and the FBI were not exactly great uh, in this case. They dragged their heels. Um, the police chief, who is um, Orville Cooney, basically kind of thought, hey, I think the kid just ran away. And he, he was very dismissive and he was very rude to the Gotchas, especially to Noreen Gosh. There, they... This case has been going on for 40 years. There's been multiple suspects. There's been multiple angles. But the Johnny Gosh case did not happen, you know, in a bubble. It happened in this, like, milieu of terror that had sort of struck uh, America and and North America. It was the Milk Carton Kid era, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, I grew up a little bit after this. So, like, in the my, like, first real memories are kind of, like, the late 80s, early 90s. But even then, the Mill Carton era was, like, still with us. Um, You know, of course, like, the big cases during this era were Johnny Gosh. Uh, another one was Eton Pates. And another one was Jacob Wetterling. Um, of the three, the only one I believe is actually solved is the uh, Jacob Wetterling case. Um, there was someone convicted for the kidnapping and murder of Eton Pates, Pedro Hernandez. But... No body was ever discovered. There was no real evidence other than uh, Hernandez's uh, uh, confession. And Hernandez is uh, not well mentally. So I'm not sure about that one. Um, With Jacob Butterling, I believe that uh, Danny Heinrich did it. Um, There's a lot of evidence there. Uh, Heinrich was a pedophile. Now, were there other people involved with the Wetterling case? Possibly. But I believe Danny Heinrich was the primary... uh, culprit in that case um now the aftermath of the johnny gosh abduction um you know it was a media storm and the cops did nothing the media did more than the police during the johnny gosh like uh abduction case like that's hard to believe but it's true like they did they did nothing um again they believe that they, they took 45 minutes even to show up after uh, John Gosh Sr. called the police. Um, Noreen had collected eyewitness accounts. The cops pretty much just kind of ignored it. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, Monty, because yeah. it's been a while since I was in the weeds on the Gosh mm-hmm. case specifically. Uh, but didn't all the available evidence sort of suggest that it was an abduction, not a runaway situation? Yeah, yeah. So, like... Noreen told the police that there was some, there was really suspicious incidents involving her son before the abduction. Like there was phone calls that were coming to the house that were like really odd. Uh, got, Johnny was talking to like a weird cop during a football game that seemed kind of creepy. Um, or at least that's the vibe that the parents got. There was people stalking around the neighborhood. Like there was a guy in a um in a car, a blue Ford Fairmont, who kind of seemed off, mm-hmm. who was asking kids for directions. And there was another man, a, a smaller man, walking between houses during all around the same time. And, you know, there's all these things going on and the cops just are kind of like, they're, they're keystoning it, right? Like, they're not really doing their job. They're not like following leads. They're not hitting the pavement. 
Noreen, it got so bad Noreen had to like hire private investigators to do the job for her because the cops just didn't do shit. Like, yeah, and it's like, <laughs> you. I mean, I think most listeners know that, like, well, the cops may or may not do what they say yeah. they do, but like they generally, you know, try to like find missing kids. Like that's one of the main good things that they say they do right yeah yeah the attitude at the time like like everyone says the attitude at the time was that kids just go missing like what mm-hmm. um maybe that was the attitude at the time but it just seems very strange that especially here you have a kid goes missing in 82 and just like but i don't know um so noreen got information later uh about um, you know, girls being forced into prostitution and, and human trafficking, and she went to the police, and the police basically said, told her to shut up. Like every time Noreen tried to do something, like and Noreen could be kind of like you know, you know, her kid disappeared. So I get why she's a bit much, right? But every time she was making waves, the cops would tell her to stop, to just shut up, basically threaten her. Now the the guy in charge at the time was a uh, real piece of work named Orville Cooney. So. He, he, uh, yeah, so the the chief of police of West Des Moines at the time was uh, Orville Cooney, and uh, it's almost as if Cooney went out of his way to like, to, like destroy the investigation or something. So there's one point where they're doing a search for Johnny in the woods, and Cooney came with a bullhorn and told everyone to go home. Like that's the kind of stuff that was going on. He's just like Cooney was. He's like an absolute maniac. Like yeah. everything you find about him is just so insane. Yeah. So there was a. Uh, the, the Des Moines Tribune did actually a big article on Cooney um, around the same time. And in the links of interviews the Des Moines Tribune uh, conducted, 18 police employees, including 14 of 20 patrol officers, described the problem they have had since Cooney became chief six years ago. Ten of them agreed to use their names, even though they say they fear for their jobs. They say they took their complaints to Major to Mayor George Mills, the city councilor, but got nowhere. So George Mills was city council here, not mayor. Um, and basically George Mills covered for Cooney. Their allegations go far beyond normal gripes and of underlings against their superiors. And in many cases, we're supported by outside sources. They allege that Cooney has beaten um, prisoners who were handcuffed, compromised a burglar, sorry, compromised a burglary investigation that, that implicated one of his sons and threatened to harass his own officers. They say that they have smelled alcohol on his breath when he was on street at night checking up on them, and they have seen beer cans in his cars. So basically, this guy's drunk on the job. That's your police chief. It's like bad lieutenant, but it's the police chief. Yeah, yeah. So he's described as being a uh, 49-year-old ex-Marine and a vengeful commander who plays (laughs) by his own rules. So he's a real something else. I uh, I have this article here too, where mm-hmm. uh, it may or may not be the same one, but uh, I'll quote from it. So it says, "Some West Des Moines policemen say they are so suspicious of their chief Orville Cooney that they now carry concealed tape recorders when they meet him." Yeah, he was a really bad guy, and remember, this is he's the police chief during Go- Johnny Gosh disappearing, and. George Mills, who's our jester mayor, uh, doesn't do a thing to stop this guy or to change what's going on. Now, let's move on to what happens in 84. 
because mm. the paper boys don't stop getting kidnapped, unfortunately. Um, on August 12th, 1984, Eugene Martin, another Des Moines area boy, uh, paper boy, uh, disappears under very similar circumstances to what happened to Johnny Gosh. So two years later, under Cooney's, you know, protection, another paper boy goes missing. Now, shortly after that, um, and the in the and the I guess heat from the public, Cooney resigns. He, he says it's oh, I have a bad heart. I have to resign. Um, the the, the cops still screw up the Eugene Martin case. Like oh, by the way, uh, yeah. the George Mills, the mayor, helped the medical retirement go through. Oh, I'm sure he did. The the news the newspapers even reported it that way. <laughs> yeah, so he's he's covering for his buddy, uh, uh, Orville mm. Cooney, who is uh, doing a bang up job. Two boys are now missing. Oh, one more side note too. Also, Cooney, despite being on medical retirement, is hired for the Polk County DA. So he gets his pension plus this new salary and he's working as an investigator for the D- DA. Like, interesting, right? Okay. Yeah, it's it's actually uh, horrifying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing is with this case, it's like, I don't know what was going on in West Des Moines in 1986. It's either, be, uh, sorry, I don't know what's going on in West Des Moines during the 80s because in like 86, um, Mark Allen is also kidnapped under a 13 year old boy. He, Mark Allen was not a paper boy, but he was in the same age range, uh, same age range as uh, Johnny and um, Eugene Martin. And so you have three boys, you know, who are kidnapped every like a two-year interval it's it's crazy like it's this is one of the cases like like i don't i like history because i could understand something from distance better like the extreme distance Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with true crime and and like things become very murky and with this case it's not even that murky it's like how do the cops not see a pattern (laughs) yeah i mean like it baffles the mind like this is almost like the textbook case where the fbi would according to their propaganda you know come in and be like hey maybe you should consider that paper boys keep going missing except for the fact that everyone in the town thought it was really weird and connected yeah and and the big connection between the two the first two boys um johnny gosh and gene martin is that there are paper boys with the same paper the des moines register Mm -hmm. so you know, being um, crazy, I started looking at who owned the Des Moines Register at the time and like the family. So the first owner of the Des Moines Register was uh, Gardner Cowell Sr. And this is uh, back in the uh, early 1900s. And he was an American banker, a publisher, a politician. And of course, he was the owner of the Des Moines Register and the Des Moines Tribune. So he was a banker and newspaper man. Mm. Now, his eldest son, uh, Russell Cowles does not become a uh, newspaper man like his father. He becomes a painter. And uh, he, you know, he, his paintings are actually pretty cool. Like Russell Cowles paintings are are, are not bad. Uh, he liked to travel around the world being a fancy rich boy and painting things. And he had many wives. And one of his wives was a woman named Nancy Cardosa. Uh, Cardosa was... Oh, no. Yeah, Cardoso, Cardozo, sorry, Nancy Cardozo. And Cardoso was the author of books and short stories, including a New York, including uh, pieces of the New Yorker magazine. And she wrote a biography of Maud Gone. And if you know who Maud Gone is, she was one of the members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. So I found that kind of interesting. Uh, also, interesting. Um, 
Oso Cardoso went to the Dalton school. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. Now, well, uh, Russell Cowles was uh, married to Cardoso, who went to the Dalton school. His younger brother, John Cowles Sr., he took over the family business. And he was the co-owner of Cowles Media Company. That included, you know, he he owned the Minneapolis Star, the Minneapolis Tribune, the Des Moines Register, Look Magazine, and he had a half interest in Harper's Magazine. Uh, to, now, this <sighs> is... <laughs> now... He was John Cowles was a Republican and he was but he was a conservative Republican. Like at the at the time in the 1960s, where he's sort of his most active, uh John um was a member of the more conservative wing of the Republican Party. Right? Because because you know, just he was, you know, just what he is. And which which I, I guess we should say for the listeners, like that was like not that might sound like almost redundant now, but like that yeah. was not necessarily the no faction in power in the republican party yeah uh his brother was a little bit more uh his brother was a progressive i'll get to his brother in a moment his brother was more of a progressive republican um but john was really against the agitation against the vietnam war in the 1960s so he served on a committee uh, against this agitation in the mid-60s with such notables as arthur h dean dean atchison eugene black and many many other great people oh of course mm. David Rockefeller was was there too. Um, <laughs> he he also served on many boards, and some of those boards he served on were the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Endow, and the uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Hmm. And I got most of this information from a 1967 book called "Who Rules America." Just so you know. Uh, <laughs> By the way, Monty. So who who rules America? Uh, from this book, it seems like a lot of old waspy guys. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> really old waspy guys um, who could trace their roots back to like, like maybe not the May- Mayflower or like just after the Mayflower. Like mm-hmm. those are the guys. Those are the guys. <laughs> so now, now John Senior and his and his brother Gardner, uh, Gardner Cows, they uh, created a comic book company with a guy named Everett Buzzy Arnold, and that comic book company was called Quality Comics, which. For, for those big comic heads out there, no, Quality Comics uh, was a golden age comic book company that had such heroes as the Spirit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And one of their heroes was called the Jester. No, no. Yeah. The Jester <laughs> was a rookie cop named Chuck Lane, uh, who learns he's a direct descendant of medieval jesters. <laughs> <laughs> Because of this and the fact he feels he is not doing enough good as a cop alone, he becomes a colorful costume adventurer known as the Jester. The Jester is a comical crime fighter who makes laughing stocks out of the criminals he fights. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Jester has no superpowers, but he is an Olympic-level athlete and brilliant at hand-to-hand combat. <laughs> In modern times, they actually brought the Jester back. Uh, DC bought the rights to a lot of... Uh, quality comics characters uh and they brought the jester back and made him like the good joker and <laughs> that sounds so lame i know and uh but there there is a they they also do like a uh, a plot line where the, the jester is a like he's a head of a group of like patriotic radicals so like almost like a like a like a militia type situation known as the arcadians and they seek to cleanse america of corruption and government so he does like you know terrorist attacks and things <laughs> he was vice the vice president so the jester's pretty based 
<laughs> but yeah, no, I just thought I'm very funny. It's like, okay, uh, the jester. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, the other co-owner of uh, of Quality Comics was Gardner Cowles Jr., who was the brother of the previous gentleman that we spoke of, uh, uh, John Cowles Sr. And John Cowell, Gardner Cowles Jr., also known as Mike Cowles, he was an American newspaper and magazine publisher. He was also co-owner of Cowles Media Company, whose assets included the Minneapolis Star, Minneapolis Tribune, Des Moines Register, Look Magazine, and Harper's Magazine. Uh, we talked about uh, Look Magazine, of course, and Quality Comics. In the 1940 Republican presidential primaries, uh, Cowles and his brother supported Wendell Wilkie. So I'm not sure if your listeners know who Wilkie was. He was a kind of a progressive Republican, which I know sounds insane, but uh, more on that. Cowles accompanied Wilkie on a world tour and helped him write the bestseller, One World. <laughs> Uh, so how do I even describe one world? Um, I'll just say this in the book, one world, Wilkie and Cowles argue for a one world government folks, 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 folks. Yeah. And it was a bestseller. Let me tell you in N42 Cowles, this is a uh, Gardner Cowles jr. Had been appointed to wartime duty as assistant director of the office of war information. Oh, hells. Yeah. His responsibilities in the OWI were to direct a domestic news bureau, coordinating information from non-military government agencies. Yeah. (laughs) Cal served in the OWI under the leadership of Elmer Davis for about a year and then returned to Des Moines. So in 1942, Cal's and Barnes accompanied special representatives of of President uh, Roosevelt, uh, Wendell Wilkie. So let me just back up a bit. Uh, Cowles and Wilkie go on this international tour to like North Africa, the Middle East, Soviet Union, and China. Um, this is in 42, right? So it's kind of like a diplomatic slash spying mission because, <laughs> I mean, Cowles is obviously, you know, you know, he's obviously a spot. Plugged in. He's obviously plugged in, right? And he's obviously uh, Wilkie's handler. Like, it's like, right? So... On this trip, they meet Stalin, and nice. <laughs> during the Stalin, uh, and and uh, Stalin, and I think it was Cowles had like an issue where maybe it was a, a translation issue or something. But Stalin was not a fan of these two guys. <laughs> they then go to China, where where um, they go to China, and in China they have an issue with uh, Madame Chang, um, Wilkie, and. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek's wife supposedly had an affair and um, it was Cal's job to sort of keep um, Wilkie from being murdered by, by Chang <laughs> and uh, so like that's going on well you know they're they're writing this book called One World that comes out and uh, One World actually I'm selling 1.5 million copies which is uh, pretty interesting and and so you know Gardner Cal's Jr. is a really strange cat and it gets kind of weirder because uh Cal's also owned the infamous Petrified Man, the Cardiff Giant. And uh, he actually used it as a coffee table. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, uh, yeah. And then he he actually uh, gave it to a museum in uh, Cooperstown, New York, where it's still there, the Cardiff Giant. Just getting real weird in Iowa. It is. Cowles was also a huge donor for the Garner Cowles Foundation, of course, after named after himself. And he was an executive of the Farfield Foundation, 
which I love that even even Wikipedia has supposed CIA front. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in 1950, uh, Cal's was involved in, prop- in a propaganda campaign called the Crusade for Freedom. And to get people uh, going even a little crazier, he was also a delegate to the 1954 Bilderberg Conference. <laughs> it was the first Bilderberg Conference, by the way. Nice. Yeah. And he, he, has a, he had a stepson who was an art dealer. So that alone, right? I mean, I mean, that alone tells me there's something wrong. Whenever you have someone in your family who's an art dealer, that's bad. Yeah. And now we've, we've talked like, so by the time we get to like the 1980s, so like our cows that we're talking about here are a little too old to be involved in the Johnny Gosh story, really, because they're in their 80s by this time in the 1980s or even older. And so the, the, the one cows who might have been at the right age was not in um, Iowa at the time. He was actually in Minneapolis because the cows family basically moved the operation from Iowa to Minnesota. And that have been John Cowles Jr., who seems to be kind of like a real progressive lib dem guy who, like, you know, gave a lot to the arts. And I'm sure he's sus in his own way, but I couldn't find anything to kind of link him. Mm-hmm. But then I started, you know, you, you do your thing where you're like, okay, okay, who was the editor at the time? Who was the editor at the time? Uh, was he a, was he a, was he a uh, jester or something? You know, was he a Freemason? Going down the wrong, yeah. Absolutely. You're going insane, right? So you're just, you're just, so I did find who the registers editor was. It was a man named James P. Gannon. Mm. Now, if you know anything about the Johnny Gosh case, you probably know about um, the whole Jeff Gannon situation. Oh, right. The okay. uh, White House, uh, the White House press uh, callboy guy who during the Bush administration was uh, throwing softballs and they found out he was a, uh, gay male prostitute who lied about his name and his age and everything else. So not related to uh, Mr. James P. Gannon. I looked different people, mm. very different people. And Jeff Gannon is not Johnny Gosh, by the way, the, the ages don't, don't fit. Jeff Gannon's far too old to be Johnny Gosh. And uh, I think he's also too short. Um, <laughs> now, Ted Gunnerson was a big uh, uh, proponent of the Jeff Gannon equals Johnny Gosh thing. Just keep that in mind. Yeah, that should be a sign to most people that yeah. pretty much most things Ted Gunderson says are, like, probably wrong. They're suspect. Yeah. Yeah, or there's truth in there, but then there's stuff in there that will kind of, like... The particulars, yeah. Yeah, the particulars, something in there that that's kind of like a poison pill, right? The big example that I found with Gunderson, by the way, is in the Finders case, when he reports on the Finders... yeah. And my, you know, I'm not going to explain the finders. I, I keep explaining to the listeners what who the finders are. I know. Gunderson injected the thing about he basically appears to have been the only source for the finders having telex machines talking directly with the DPRK and China and Vietnam. And then the customs report says like different countries. Yeah. So and then that's a classic case of like Gunderson probably trying to take a real fucked up thing and then shit coding apparently the communists. Yeah. I mean something like that. I don't know. Well, I mean, that's par for course for Gunderson. He's Cointel Pro Gunderson, right? Like he Yeah. That's that he's a disinfo agent that they use when they want to like shit coat like it's like they want to when they want to shit coat their crimes, they bring up people like Gunderson 
And then Gunnarsson has his pet peeve, of course, as communists. So it just makes complete sense that he would smear the uh, deep, you know, he would smear like North Korea and Vietnam with that. Right. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of his thing.
But back to the Des Moines Register, like, mm-hmm. you know, I still was looking for, you know, connections. Then I remember there was a podcast years ago called Faded Out. And in the podcast Faded Out, um, the, uh, the the host had a had a had a had an idea, or I guess I guess she had a theory that the person who kidnapped and murdered Johnny was probably someone who worked at the Des Moines Register. And one of the names that showed up was a guy named Wilbur Milhouse. Now, Wilbur Milhouse is a very, very, very suspect guy. He worked at the Des Moines Register as a circulation manager. So it was his job to basically hire paper boys and interact with the paper boys. Um, mm-hmm. Not only that, but Wilbur Milhouse was a convicted pedophile. So to also make it clear, he was a convicted pedophile as of when Johnny Gosh went missing. Yeah, he so Will uh, Wilbur Milhouse, he kind of got arrested twice for pedophilia. The first time was in 1975. He was arrested October 13 in connection with an, an obscene telephone call to a junior high school student. And he has been ordered and committed to Broadway's Polk County Hospital for psychiatric evaluation and treatment. So he was 31 at the time. And that's the first time. So he was he 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 went back to his job at the Tribune after this, or sorry, the Tribune, the uh the register right after this. So he he goes down to a you know to a mental hospital for uh calling up kids with sexually charged messages and things, and they hire him right back. And like that's the thing, right? Because it's like, okay, I could see not firing a guy, maybe, except when he is in the exact position of interacting with paper boys. Exactly. Exactly. Like, like, yeah, that is the damning thing. Like his job was, if you wanted a job as a paper boy, you called up Wilbur Milhouse. It said, Mr. Milhouse, I would like to have a, you know, a paper route, please. That's a bad place for that guy to be, right? Yeah. A very bad place for that guy to be. And, and Wilbur Milhouse, like a little bit about his backstory, he's from the area, from what I understand, and he was a Vietnam vet. And so when he came back from the war, he saw like the anti-war movement was picking up steam and Mr. Wilhouse, Milhouse decided he was going to do something about that. And what was he going to do? Well, he was going to start a youth group. Oh, no. So uh, Wilbur Milhouse, two dozen Des Moines persons marched from Veterans Memorial Auditorium to the State House Tuesday morning to show the men in South Asia that we do not and will not forget them. They call themselves the Greater Des Moines Youth Movement. And they followed a float of a 10-foot American flag made of tissue paper. They were the most part high school age. Three or four were adults. Although you are a small group, said Agriculture Secretary L.B. Liddy at the State House, I assure you that you have the majority of the res- responsible Iowans behind you. Ugh. So um, the the person who put this group together was Wilbur Milhouse. So Milhouse was 26 at the time, and he's now a, in charge of a, of a mostly high school-aged boys youth group in Iowa. This is in 1970. Mm-hmm. Now... I don't know if you cut this when I said it, but remember that John Cal Sr. wanted to counteract agitation against the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So maybe Cowles had something to do with this group. Maybe he helped fund it or something, because it's a little odd that there's like a youth movement that, you know, bullshit youth movement group set up by a pedophile uh, 
who works for the Des Moines Register, who is, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it seems odd to me. And who only a couple ladders up <laughs> whose family is directly connected with intelligence. Yeah. Right. So it's like, does that seem like an op to you? Like, let's have a bunch of, you know, it seems odd, right? It does seem odd. Yeah. So we have Milhouse, who's a part of this youth movement, and he's not a youth, by the way, he's 26, into 30. And a few years later, he goes down for that phone call. But again, he's let back into the Des Moines, Iowa, or the Des Moines Register Circle, and he works as a circulation manager. Now, in the podcast Faded Out, there is a guest who comes on who calls himself Yellow Jacket or Yellow Yellow Bag, sir, Yellow Bag. And Yellow Bag was a former um, Des Moines Register paperboy. And he talks about Wilmer, Wilbur Melhouse being creeped to him. This is back in like 82, 1980, 81. So he was a, he was a kid at the time. Hmm. And he says, he says a bunch of things like Milhouse would tell him, Hey, um, do you want to come over to my house? I have rich friends who would love to see you nude. They'll pay things like that. He would buy the kids booze and cigarettes to hang out with him. There was a, there was a moment where um, Wilbur Milhouse was uh, walking and these teenage boys saw him with yellow bag and they stopped yellow bag and said, Hey, do not go in the house with that guy. He's a creep. So like, you know, Milhouse was really, really sus. Now, Yellow Bay goes on to say things like in the in the podcast that the that that he saw Milhouse talking to the man who was driving the blue car that took Johnny the the uh, the Fort Fairmont because mm-hmm. Yellow Bay claims that that same man approached him and other paper boys. And he said that you know Milhouse may have known that man, or it seems like they did know that man, and. He also claims that Milhouse once said, um, nothing would have happened to Johnny if he just kept his damn mouth shut. So so Yellowbag says that Milhouse said that. Yeah. Very interesting. And on the on the podcast, um on the podcast, um Yellowbag's mom comes on and confirms the story because she was there when he said it. So maybe it's like this, you know, a crazy guy trying to like act tough or whatever, but it's still it's a lot going on, man. It's a lot there. Yeah. What podcast was this? It was called Faded Out. It's the first season. Yeah. Shout out. That sounds very good. It's it's good. She like like um, she goes from like super like noited to kind of like following her own kind of like um, her own kind of like theory, which is the Wilbur Millhouse theory, and I think that she has some convincing arguments for Millhouse being this this the 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 prime suspect because you know often these cases are local, but sometimes they're not. And I think she has a very convincing sort of uh, argument. And the thing that really catched me with Milhouse was the fact that he has this connection to this youth movement group. That sounds super sus, right? Yeah, that sounds like something beyond just being a creep. Yeah. And he has rich friends who are willing to pay to see young boys naked. Mm -hmm. And he keeps getting his job back at the Des Moines Register. At a minimum, it sounds like this is like probably a better lead than oh, I don't know, he ran away. Like, uh, yeah. And why didn't the cops like okay? Why didn't the cops just say okay? Who's a who's a who's a sex pervert who works at the Des Moines Register? Like, w- like that's the basic thing, right? Step number one, basically. Yeah. Who knows? This kid is out this time. 
who would have had access to this kid? Like, this is like, I, I'm shocked by how incompetent the police were. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not. But the thing with, with, with Milhouse, like, just to sort of, like, wrap up Milhouse here, is that he was arrested finally for uh, molestation of a number of young boys in 1986. This is in late 86. So remember, the last boy disappeared in mid-86. Milhouse is arrested in late 86. After Milhouse goes down, there are no more abductions in West, West Des Moines that we know of. Hmm. Wilbur was arrested and they found photos and addresses of over 2,200 boys. 2,200. Yeah. Good Lord. That sure sounds like a like an industrial operation or something, right? That doesn't sound like... Let me just... So he had the names and telephone numbers of 2,200 persons, mostly young boys. Mm-hmm. But they also found uh, photographs. So it's not just photos. It's the names and phone numbers of... Remember, he's probably collecting these because he's the circulation manager. Every time a young boy wants a job and he hears the voice and he thinks they're cuter probably, he just like writes it down like circles it and keeps it in his book. Mm-hmm. And he, but the thing is, he so it was the house was searched um, after two 15 year old boys accused Milhouse of sexual abusing them. A sexually explicit phone call to a 14 year old boy was also traced to Milhouse's home. So, this is after what happened to him in the 1970s. So, he, he claims that the names and numbers were just, you know, for his, uh, his, his job as, as circulation. The police disagree, actually, because they say, uh, the names was compiled handwritten notes. Some of the names and phone numbers uh, had notations. If you, you know, and pictures from um, yearbooks and other places. Hmm. Yeah. So he was collecting, he was collecting kids basically in like his own little way. So again, like, um, and he was, okay, get to this. The affidavit also said that Milhouse told police his monthly phone bill had been as high as $383. Why was his phone bill so high? Because he was calling gab lines. Gab lines, man. Gosh dang. Yep. So, Jimmy, what can you tell the, the, the sweet listeners about gab lines? All right. So, gab lines were this interesting thing. The short version is they were like party lines, basically. Almost like chat rooms, but for the phone, right? I know some of this is going to sound stupid to you maybe the younger listener, but where the short version is that gab line specifically was a, you know, product offered by Northwestern Bell Telephone Company. And I found this interesting article from 1985. So somewhere in when this stuff is happening, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd like to read a portion of that article. So this is, you know, December 20th, 1985, Omaha. Dolores Saxer said she first realized how serious her daughter's addiction to the telephone was when she received phone bills 34 pages long for more than $2,600. Saxer said her daughter helped run up the bills since January by calling Gabline. The Northwestern Bell Telephone Company's controversial party line service. The calls were made on Saxer's phone and that of her son, Dennis. Each have bills of more than $1,300. Gabline charges $0.25 cents for the first two minutes and $0.08 cents for each additional minute. Saxer said some of the calls made by her daughter lasted nearly three hours. 
She said, Mother, it's just like alcohol or tobacco. It's an addiction. Gabline and Gab Teen were offered by Northwestern Bell as a way to produce additional revenue. By dialing specified numbers, callers can engage in conversations with one or more other people who are on the line. Gab Teen was canceled last week in Minneapolis, Des Moines, and Omaha after the company was told about teenagers in Minneapolis using the service to arrange drug deals and sex. Yeah, and here you have Wilbur Milhouse using these lines that are full of children. Like, this guy is obviously a real sick, you know, piece of work, and... uh as stated, like after eighty six, and Will and Millhouse goes to prison, we no longer see these, you know, cr- these kidnappings of young boys happening in West Des Moines. I'm not. I'm not saying that Millhouse did it. I'm just pointing that out. Now, the thing is, people who knew Millhouse say that yes, he was a combat vet, but he was not a big person, right? Um. Mm-hmm. Whereas Johnny Gosh was a big kid. He was 12 years old, but he was large. And I was a big kid, you know, when I was, when I was that age, I know how it, you know, you're kind of like a puppy with your, 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 your paws are too big. You know, you're kind of like not into yourself, but you're still big and you can, uh, it's going to take more than one person to grab a 12 year old who's fighting back. Yeah. Like my mom stopped being worried about me getting abducted around that age. Yeah. Right. Now, the thing, the thing is, there were other pedophiles at the Des Moines Register. Interesting. Now, another one of these pedophiles was a man named Frank Sakura. So Frank Sakura was, he worked in the circulation department as well. It's around the same time. This is like the early to mid 80s. And Frank Sakura basically admitted to a private investigator that he had been sexually assaulting young boys that worked as newspaper carriers. What was his role at the, at the newspaper? His role, in the newspaper was, um, he was fired from his job, at the circulation department of the Des Moines register. Okay. So he was in circulation. He was also in circulation. Yeah. So, so another guy in circulation. Now the thing is that Frank's older brother, James Sikora years earlier, in 74, I believe. Let me just confirm that. Yep, 74. So Frank Sikora's younger brother, or older brother, sorry, James Sikora, was also convicted of child molestation. And he also worked at the Des Moines Register. So you have two brothers who were involved in the same stuff. So we have, at a minimum, three pedophiles in the circulation department of the Des Moines Register. Yes, sir where newspaper boys kept going missing. Yep. So three. And the police did not... I mean, Frank Sikora went down because of a private investigator, right? And mm-hmm. Wilbur Wilhouse finally went down in 1986 after people in West Des Moines had enough, right? Three boys had gone missing. And finally, after after years of this, Milhouse goes down for a few molestation charges, right? But this had been building up for years. Like, if yellow bag stories are true and it seems like they are because he was you know from that area and everything else i mean um millhouse was doing that stuff like in the early 80s like around the same time johnny gosh was kidnapped Mm -hmm. and previously too like we have information of him calling up young boys like this is what this guy is so we have three in the circulation department who are known pedophiles 
And the cops didn't even question these people in regards to Johnny Gosh that we know of. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, who actually busted Sakura was a private detective known as Sam Soda, which is one of the strangest names I've. It almost sounds like a, uh, like like a character, like a golden age comic book character. Yeah, Sam Soda. So Sam Soda was actually he's a, a ex cop, ex marine, hard nosed private investigator. Sam Soda busted Frank Sakura, and. Through that, he sort of got involved in the Johnny Gosh case. Noreen Gosh says that Sam Soda sort of like wormed his way into the case. And Sam Soda's thing seemed to have been like, he's like, I know the weird, like, I know like the, the, the pedophilic underground. And one of the things that Sam Soda would do is that he ha- he would go to police conferences and show actual child pornography at these conferences. Really? Yeah. And like, so like the cops would be there and he's like, this is what you have to look out for. This is what this is. And he called his, his like little group scared, which is like, is that an acronym? Or? It's an acronym. Let me find out what's, I, I, I it's, I didn't put it in my notes. Hold on a second. It's bizarre. I mean, as you're looking that up, I would say like, what is the perfect plausible deniability cover? But like, hey, why do you have child porn? Oh, because I go to police conferences and I show a room full of cops this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And supposedly cops, I mean, there's 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 a lot of like speculation with Sam Soda. Mm-hmm. And some of it's like that he was selling, he was possibly selling this stuff to cops. There's all sorts of stuff, right? Yeah, I think one thing that I've seen in coverage of like, when you get these huge busts for like people who have like child born and so forth, one of the reasons why they will bust someone with so many different images or, you know, videos or what have you is not just because they're fiends or whatever, but also because it's literally like valuable. So it's almost like more like busting like a drug like a drug dealer with a huge amount rather than like for personal consumption and so forth. Thank you for George for CavDev because his site pulled through again. Mm -hmm. Scared stands for stolen children are reported every day. One of the most um, uh, tortured. Yeah. You know, that's tortured, man. That's, that's putting a lot. That is not a good. Yeah. Yeah. Bad one. Stolen children are reported every day. All right, man. Yeah, supposedly scared only lasted for about a year. <laughs> yeah, because cops are probably like, you can't be doing this, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably. Like, this is kind of fucked up, dude. Um, According to Reen Gotch, Sam Soda is like the Antichrist, basically. Hmm. And then according to um Frank Gotch Sr., Sam Soda is a cool dude. So according to Frank Jr., uh, Sr., um, Sam Soda was a... um a tireless kind of like, you know, cop on the or ex-cop on the right side of the law, trying to help kids. Noreen Gotch can't stand the man. She thinks that he's involved in the kidnapping. Um, and Noreen Gotch, I mean, you know, she had she she goes, she's a wild card, right? Yeah. Like Noreen Gotch has said she has a she is gonna make people talk about her son as much as she like every time. There's an anniversary of Johnny Gosh's disappearance. I maybe not so much in these past few years, but Noreen Gosh tries to get people talking about her son again. 
And sometimes she will, it seems that she will use like a very inflammatory, uh, what's what I'm looking for, uh, language or, or, or statements to kind of get the ball rolling. And I think that in her mind, it's completely justified. It's just like she has to get people talking about her son. Yeah. So there's been everything from like the Iowa. She says that she had connection with the Iowa mob who warned her that someone put a hit on, on out on her. There was uh, supposedly there was going to be a hit on her in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She claims to have spoken to like mafia underworld type people who told her that they would have never done that to her son. They were going to help her out. So like there's all these like strange stories with her.
I, I am totally in Irene's side on is whenever she was in contact with with Orville Cooney because Orville Cooney is like where this case goes wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So Noreen Gotch would not have to do this stuff if Orville Cooney did his job. Now, Maureen Gotch was on a radio show years ago yeah. and she stated something that is completely wild. So she's on the radio and then she goes, oh, former West Des Moines Mayor George Mills talked to me one day while shopping and he told me that Orville Cooney was a pedophile who was having sex parties in Omaha or involved in sex parties in Omaha, which is a jaw dropper of a a statement. So our uh, friend, the jester mayor of West Des Moines, who's protecting Orville, tells Maureen, this is according to Maureen, that Orville was involved in these parties in in, uh, Nebraska. And now this is what opens things up Mm -hmm. to a lot of big speculation between these cases. There's more than one connection between what happened in West Des Moines, Iowa, and what happened in Nebraska with the Franklin scandal. Now, before we get into the Franklin scandal, because they are connected, I just want to say one more thing about Orville, Orville Dean Cooney. Mm-hmm. So after he retired from being a cop, did you know that uh, Cooney was arrested for shoplifting? I did see that article. Yeah. From Target, of all places. From Target. And you know what he was arrested for shoplifting? What was he stealing? Two blank videotapes. Oh, no. Two switch plates. Fuck. Two packages of screw hooks. I didn't. I I have this article clipped and everything in the notes. I didn't freaking see that it said what he was stealing. Good lord! Now, why would someone steal those items instead of just buying them? And Monty, okay, I gotta ask you. Okay, for sure, those are items that like a freaking pedophile or something would have or buy or whatever. Yeah. Now I gotta ask you on the flip side. This is being reported in the West Des Moines register. Yep. Is this like a is this like a signal or something? Or is it like a warning maybe? I I also think there's a possibility at this point like we're, we've moved past the West Des Moines so the West Des Moines register changes hands in the 80s. Mm. So, I'm going to find out the exact date. I'm sorry, I'm sorry dear listeners for for being boring, but I have to just find the exact day sometimes. I'll just yeah. edit it around. Who cares? Yeah, we're making good time. Yeah, dude. No, like I mean, it's I. W- I wanted to get through it fast, like this stuff, right? Like, because I know that you have a lot of cool stuff to talk about, and I just want to like be very kind of like point, point, point on this one. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that like we can't know. We just say, look at this weird shit, and it is weird. Exactly. Right. Um. Shit. When was he arrested? So it was after '83. Because in '85, um, the, the uh, Des Moines Register was bought by Granite, so the uh, the Cowley family no longer owned it after '85. 
Let me find. Yeah. So that can explain <laughs> some things, right? Uh, 87. Yeah. So he was arrested in 87. Um, Orville was arrested. Orville Cooney, the ex uh, police chief of West Des Moines, Iowa, was arrested in 87 for having, for stealing blank tapes and uh, two packages of screw hooks and all sorts of strange items. And the reason this is in the Des Moines Register is because the Des Moines Register, probably why it was there, is because it was sold. So a different group of people owned the paper. So hmm. that kind of explains that, I think. Yeah. And like in this uh, article, you can see his face and he just looks absolutely freaking demented. Yeah. it's It seems like no one liked the man. Like he just seems like an awful person. But George Mills really protected him. Our, our jester. Our, je- our jester, George Mills, our jester mayor. But I mean, as a jester, it's kind of interesting that he would then go up to Marine Gotch and some joker ass shit say that to her like that is crazy that is like actually if it's true like if that actually happened mm-hmm. like how do you just like slide that in oh you know the uh the police chief who screwed up your uh, son's uh kidnapping he's a uh, child molester uh, who likes to hang out in omaha nebraska with his good friend the police chief of omaha yeah so because Noreen Gosh would say this in other interviews. I know it's not Gunderson messing around necessarily. Yeah. But I got to ask you, do you think, and, and we can cut this if you want, but like, yeah. do you think that Noreen Gosh is telling the truth here? I think it's so wild of an accusation that like the idea that George Mills would just come up to her and say this, doesn't really fit but again the world's insane yeah but right but like i'm so conflicted because it's like noreen gotch is 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 the obvious mother who's suffering and you want to like believe everything she says right yes but i know like i've caught her in a few like whoppers over the years like she there's certain things she said which are just like way out there from talking to hitman to johnny coming home to like, I, I believe Johnny Gosh was killed decades ago. I don't think he came home to visit her. Uh, maybe someone who dressed up like Johnny Gosh or pretended to be Johnny Gosh visited her. But I don't believe it was actually her son. Um, yeah. Um, unfortunately, I believe Johnny Johnny's gone. And the only way we're ever going to get any resolution in this case is if, if, like, someone confesses and you find the body. Like, the reason I believe the Wetterling case is actually solved is because not only did the man confess, but he was able to show you where the body was, right? Yeah. He said, this is where the body is. And the guy who did it, like, listen, he may not have acted alone. I believe that. And I believe the police in the Wetterling case was also, they were terrible. Um, With the Eton Page case, I don't really believe that uh, Hernandez did it. I, I just doesn't, it doesn't fit. I, I think it's just a crazy person. Unfortunately, like like someone who's mentally, you know, mentally unwell and like they took advantage of that. Some per- some people because like he's convicted with no body. Yeah, right. That's a that's a it's a very strange. Um, with, with and, and almost no physical evidence. So with Johnny, I think that Johnny Johnny was taken and I'm not sure what happened to him afterwards. There's a lot of theories. And, you know, the reason we were bringing up. You know, Omaha and Nebraska is that. Another connection 
to that is uh, Paul Bonacci, right? Mm-hmm. And now Bonacci has his tale about what happened and to Johnny Gosh. And in his tale, Sam Soda makes an appearance. So according to Bonacci, Bonacci was, he was used and abused by uh, networks of pedophiles and other criminals. And Bonacci was involved in all sorts of different things from street hustling to small time drug dealing to breaking in, you know, B&Es and things from what I understand. Like he was a small time criminal. And uh, Bonacci had uh, actually been arrested for molestation himself and he was in prison. And he claimed to have information about Johnny Gosh. And uh, when he, he met with certain people, so for instance, said Gunnarsson, he also met with John Gosh Sr. And he told them his tales. And a part of one of his tales was that um, it was Paul Bonacci, a man named Emilio, and Sam Soda were in a, like a crummy, like rundown motel. And there Sam Soda had photos of different boys that they could, you know, kidnap and sell to a network of pedophiles. And one of these boys was uh, Johnny Gosh. And according to Bonacci, uh, him and Emilio, Emilio was the driver. He was the man in the uh, the, the, uh, the blue car. Um, and Bonacci was the man skulking between the houses that has been uh, different witnesses have stated they've seen. They, they grabbed Johnny and took him, basically took him across America in a way. And he ended up in a... Um, he ended up in a home in Colorado where he's being sold to a man that uh, Bonacci called the Colonel. And uh, there's been speculation about who the Colonel is. Uh, it could be Aquino. Uh, that's the most uh, common belief. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing the thing with Bonacci is it's like, how much of Bonacci can you believe and how much of it can you not? Like, like how much of it's real? How much of it is just him sort of like being used by different bad actors and him just using, you know, the Johnny Gosh tale to sort of like get out of jail himself, right? There is something about Bonacci where I think there's a lot to be said about his about what happened to him that I believe did happen. I believe that he was uh, used and abused. And did you ever get a chance to see the America's Most Wanted where they go to Colorado? No, I don't think I did. So... In the early 90s or so, because Bonacci got involved in the case in the late 80s, early 90s. So this is years after Johnny's been missing. America's Most Wanted took Bonacci to Colorado to corroborate, corroborate his, his statements. And there they found the house where he claims they kept Johnny Gosh. The house was there. They go inside the house and it's like a nightmare. Like the basement of this house is a nightmare. Like just like open pipes and just filthy and disgusting. And he claims that in that those were the pipes where they would have the boys chained up. And in the house, you see the carvings of different boys' initials in like the uh, in the wood. And in the house, just Banashi loses his mind. Like he starts crying uncontrollably. The producers of America's Most Wanted were interviewed afterwards, and they said they 100% believe something happened to Banashi in that house. They're not sure what, but something. There was something very dark that happened there. Um, they weren't able to find out who owned the house by the time they got there because it was kind of abandoned. But the former owner of the house was a prison guard. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't name him, but they said he was a prison guard. So, Talk about bringing your work home, right? Yep. When, when, we, when you talk about Paul Bonacci, of course, like the thing he's most known for outside of you know the Johnny Gosh case, of course, Franklin. So you have... 
according to Noreen Gosh, you have George Mills telling her that the former police chief of West Des Moines who bungled the case is good pals with the Franklin scandal guys. And then you have Paul Bonacci with his story. You have you know this connection. You have two connections or two different people who say that this case is connected to what happened in Nebraska. That's right. Noreen specifically says that in addition to George Mills telling her, right, she says in general she found out that the West Des Moines police chief Orville Cooney was good friends with Robert Wademan. Maybe Wadman? I don't know. Either way. Uh, Robert Wadman was the Omaha police chief, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah he was. He was. Mm-hmm. He was. He's the... Uh... Yeah, he, he was the one who was um, uh, suspected of uh, of raping and impregnating Alicia Owens. That's right. And so Noreen Gosh asserts that Orville Cooney, her police chief in West Des Moines, was friends with and attending orgies, basically, with the Omaha police chief. And the 